All right. Here we go. This is the egalitarian silver bullet. This is like the one verse for the egalitarian side that can tend to be like game over. Like the whole discussion is is conquered by this verse. I'm going to explain what I mean by that, but I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Many egalitarians, not just a few random people, many use it for this very purpose. So in the important and sometimes raging debate, hold on a second, someone's calling me or something. Um, okay, YouTube's just telling me I'm live. Thanks, I, I knew that. Um, in the important and sometimes raging, sadly, and sniping debate over women in ministry, there are generally two sides. Side one, that is, those who think that there are some limits on what women should or should not do in ministry, such as one that, that there's a lot of people within this side, different groups, but one they would mostly all agree on is that women should not be elders in the local church in the biblical sense of elder. Okay, so sometimes the word pastor has that biblical meaning. Other times it doesn't. That's the way churches are. Sometimes they use the word priest, which shouldn't be actually used in a biblical sense. Um, the second side, though, now that side's called either complementarians or sometimes patriarchalists or hierarchalists or other names. Um, the other side, though, side two, are those who think there's no such limits on women as far as their role in ministry. There's just zero limits there. These, uh, these would say, hey, there can be any ministry position in existence and there can be men and women both filling that role. There's no problem there. There's no issue with a woman uh, having teaching and having authority over men in any church context. That's the egalitarian side. So the complementarian, which is, which is more what I deal with here, and the egalitarian sides, I'm kind of comparing their issues in this extensive, exhaustive series called Women in Ministry. You can access it here on YouTube. You can check it out on my website, BibleThinker.org. It's entirely free. Even the notes, my teaching notes from this series are also free. You can access those on BibleThinker.org. Org. If you have trouble finding them, just make sure you click on the video title and not the video thumbnail. That's the key. <laughs> um, in this debate, though, the egalitarians have one particular silver bullet verse. Um, this is used by some of them to prove the whole case. Uh, some egalitarians say that whatever, you know, when, when complementarians bring up these passages, like in 1 Timothy 2, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. When they bring up these passages, there are some egalitarians, many, who will say, hey, you have to be misunderstanding that verse. It can't mean what you think it means because of Galatians 3.28, because of the, our silver bullet verse. So many complementarians are unaware of this. Like if you are raised in a complementarian environment, you may not know that it's a silver bullet verse to egalitarians. Like they see Galatians 3.28 as really powerful and game-changing Whereas most complementarians probably aren't thinking that it relates to the issue at all. So let's look at the verse. And then I'm going to show you guys everything. <laughs> we, this, this whole series is exhaustive. We go deep in the debates. I'm not wasting a minute of your time, I hope, with any of these videos. But they'll be long because I'm going very deep and detailed into the different debates. I'm quoting the scholarship and all that. So um, Galatians 3.28, here's what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, you are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That idea that there's no male and female, that's the key. That's the statement basically to say, hey, um, end of story. Uh-oh. Audio and video are not synced. I am very sorry, you guys. It's probably going to be that way for this whole video. There's, there's nothing I can do midstream to change that. I'm very sorry. I know that that's disruptive. Um, YouTube does not allow me to fix it after the fact either. And it would take, I'd have to cancel the stream and restart. 
and I think I'd rather keep plugging through. So, I'm sorry. That's really unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, I don't want to waste time talking about it, but... Yes, yeah, so just close your eyes. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> don't know why that, that is. I'll, I'll have to fig uh, troubleshoot it later. Um, so, the... Um, the Galatians 3.28 verse is basically used to say, look, if there's no male or female in Christ, then that means there cannot be distinctions about what roles you can have in the church based upon being male and female. That's the basic logic of that verse. Let me give you guys, though, a quick summary as we run through this. Just a reminder. This is what I've done so far in this series. Okay, we've done six videos in this series. There's probably going to be at least 12 when I'm all done. At the, my current plan, maybe it'll be 37. We'll see. Uh, number one. The first video is why we can't think biblically about the topic of women in ministry. In that video, I just want to give you guys a quick rundown because many are not aware that there's a whole series here and you can get the playlist down below or on BibleThinker.org. Um, the first video examines several philosophical or extra-biblical assumptions that cause people to bypass the Bible on this topic. These mistakes, like they, they literally bypass the Bible, they're really frequently um, frequent amongst egalitarians in particular, but also complementarians. Both sides do this. And I find people, like I saw an entire book that did this. It was about like four views on women in ministry and it did this the whole book. It was really, it was really depressing reading it. I think that's probably the most important video in my series. It's, it's the one that's not a Bible study. But if you don't pay attention to the points there, you will never do a Bible study because you'll bypass the Bible. The second video in the series was about women's submission in Genesis 1 through 3. So is women's submission like a curse meant to be overturned? A lot of egalitarians will say that. And so we examine Genesis 1 through 3 and all that they say about the sameness and differences between men and women. Those are foundational passages. They're really important and they're frequently brushed over by people. I showed that Genesis 2 offers, before the fall, offers many indications of differences in role between men and women that are very important. And then Genesis 3, the, the interpretation of the fall that egalitarians offer, I think, fails. Now, you might think, oh, so this entire series is Mike trying to be complementary and trying to fight egalitarians. No, I think egalitarians are factually wrong over and over again. On the fundamental side, I think complementarians are wrong on the incidental sides, right? So things that are not core to their case, they're often wrong about. So I'm trying to bring correction on both sides. But um, in the course of this series, I found that, um, in fact, in my own studies, I was... I was very saddened at the quality of Bible study that was being done by egalitarian scholars. And I still am. I think that they have really blown it. And I can't pretend everyone's equally treating the Bible with the same respect and care to evaluate Scripture carefully. Because they're not. They're just not. And that's this whole series is demonstrating that a, a hundred times in a row, I hope. The third video in the series was how women could not couldn't lead in the Old Testament. So I examined examples of women who were prophets leaders, yep, I'll use that word, political powers, and I asked why they weren't priests, especially focusing on egalitarian claims about women leaders, such as Deborah, where there's a lot to learn there, but it doesn't move into the realm of egalitarianism, but it does offer correction for complementarians on their side. The fourth video was women leaders in the New Testament, specifically whether they were overseers, uh, deacons, or elders. Then the fifth video was women apostles. Were there women apostles, and how do we what do we think about that if there were? Um, how do we apply that? The sixth video last time was things I did not know as a complementarian. This was kind of like a, a just a whole bunch of different things. And that video has timestamps so you can navigate through it. But it was a bunch of different passages of scripture that egalitarians will bring up to try to make their case. So 
I hope that that gives you guys uh, the summary I hope you find helpful. We're going today into part seven. Okay, this is, uh, each part should be able to stand alone. And that's why I'm, that's why they're long videos, because it's like everything about this topic is in one video, as opposed to spreading it out. So each video should be able to stand alone, but it's the entirety of the series that will give you the full teaching. And at the end, I will give you a summary, okay? There'll be a full video of just summaries of my conclusions. I won't build a case. I'll just offer the conclusions so that you can have them all in one place for you to consider, because you do not have to agree with me, but you may want to consider these things because I'm trying to interact with the best scholars and their best arguments for both sides, especially for the egalitarian side. So as a reminder, forgive me for, for going on for a little bit before we get into the meat of today. As a reminder, there were years where as a teacher, um, I, Mike Winger, I would not answer questions about women in ministry. As when I got, in fact, I told uh, the mods like for the Friday Q&A that I do every week. I was like, yeah, stop sending me questions for women in ministry. I don't know the answers yet. <laughs> so do you get this? I'm not like, I wasn't like this convinced complementarian who's like going to push his views and he's, and he's going to be like this battling for these things no matter what. I, as I examined my heart, I wanted to change my mind to become egalitarian, maybe because of cultural pressures. That may be the reason why it would just make it a lot easier to interact with the world. But after doing a really thorough study, after digging, digging deep and spending months researching scholars from all sides, especially those who I didn't previously agree with, especially the egalitarians, I am more strongly convinced of the complementarian, soft complementarian view than I've ever been. I mean, I, I don't think this is even debatable. It shouldn't be debated. Like, I mean, it really shouldn't be debated. I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, work through these topics one at a time. But where I thought we might find really good arguments, it was just not good arguments over and over again. That's my honest assessment. I know that people find that offensive because they think I'm insulting scholars and egalitarian scholars might feel as though they're being personally attacked when I'm saying your arguments are bad. It's not a personal attack. You say that about other people's arguments all the time. <laughs> um, so I have changed my mind on several things, but I'm still complementarian, uh, very much stronger than ever before. So here we go. This is the silver bullet passage, the egalitarian silver bullet passage, Galatians 3.28. It says there's no male or female. How do the egalitarians use this? Uh, let me share with you and, and pay careful attention to this quote. This is, this is how Cynthia Westfall, Cynthia Long Westfall uses this passage. Note this because this is just showing you how you leverage Galatians 3.28 from an egalitarian perspective to to force you to reinterpret other passages of the Bible. It's, it, that's a, it's a pretty big deal to do that. She says, this does not override any identity of male and female that may be legitimately drawn from the creation account, but, right, her view of Galatians 3.28, it overrides certain theological constructs about the significance of what is differentiated in creation and negates the assumed correlation between the various functions in the church and gender roles. So you cannot go certain places with Genesis or with the idea of gender roles because of her interpretation. It becomes a rule. Galatians 3.28 becomes a rule for how you can interpret other things in the Bible. Let me share some other egalitarian quotes. Um, uh, this is also from uh, Cynthia Long Westfall who says, uh, on the one hand, feminists and egalitarians claim that the verse removes religious and social disadvantages as well as boundaries in unequal racial, social, and gender power relationships. Paul Jewett even refers to it as the Magna Carta for humanity. Now, you might notice terms like uh, unequal racial, social, and gender power relationships. That feels like modern feminism and critical theory, um, that the terminology. 
So you, we could do a whole video on that topic, um, and that would be worth doing. I don't want to do it in this series, but I think that there may be, it may be that those who hold a critical theory are, are forced into egalitarian views because of their presuppositions, but that's another. I don't hold to critical theory, so um, don't do that to me. So another one is, um, this is from uh, Rebecca Grotheis. Do you get that? I pronounced her name right, guys. <laughs> Sorry, I did that wrong before. It's spelled G-R-O-O-T-H-I-U-S. So I thought Grotheis was correct, but it's Grotheis. Anyway, Rebecca Grotheis, who says it's probably the most important, most important equality text for the egalitarians. Catch that. Probably the single most important text for their entire case. Now, it doesn't obviously seem to talk about women in ministry, but they're saying it's the key, it's a key text for them. So it's not just me making it the silver bullet passage to make a straw man here. In um, in discovering biblical equality, page one thirty four, it says uh, Ronald and Beverly Allen similarly call Galatians three twenty eight the feminist credo of equality in their book Liberation Traditionalism: Men and Women in Balance. The feminist credo of equality. So I'm not kidding, guys. This is a big deal that this verse is the silver bullet. I had to do a whole video on just this one verse, whereas I would have spent a lot less time on it on my own. It's like, no, if they're going to use it that strongly, we're going to need to talk about it in detail. So it really becomes the filter. Let me share with you a quote from um, from Bruce. F.F. Bruce. This is Rebecca Grothe quoting F.F. Bruce. But she says, F.F. Bruce declares that Paul states the basic principle here. If restrictions on it, the basic principle is Galatians 3.28, by the way. And if restrictions on that, like women can't be elders, if restrictions on it are found elsewhere in the Pauline corpus, as in 1 Corinthians 14.34 or 1 Timothy 2.11, they are to be understood in relation to Galatians 3.28, not vice versa. So think about this for a second. This means, this means that Galatians 3.28 gives you the rule for how you're allowed to interpret 1 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 14. And I've heard egalitarians who were used to be complementarian and how this is how they moved over. They were like, well, if I accept that view of Galatians, then I must have a new interpretation of 1 Timothy 2. On the surface, it looks like it's forbidding women for, to teach and have authority, you know, at least the role of elder. But that can't be the case because Galatians. So let's find a new interpretation. This becomes the rule for how you interpret the rest of the Bible. Um, that's always a questionable issue, a questionable thing. And that's the issue we have today. Here's the big question. One question for today's video. Is that right? Is it right that there's a rule that Galatians 3.28 limits how I can interpret other passages that seem to be talking about women and men and their relationship in marriage and especially in the church? Does it become the rule? Is it the silver bullet? So we're going to look through it in detail today. Here we go. Galatians 328. Someone says one verse to rule them all. <laughs> I saw that KL. I don't usually look at the live chat, but I saw that. That was good. One verse to rule them all. <laughs> um, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's some things that are important. Uh, like uh, just as a Bible teacher, I want to give you some background. Okay. Um, there's just some big, broad, sweeping things to know about Galatians 3.28 before we get further. And one of them is that, notice how, and, and here the ESV presents the Greek well, like because it says there's neither Jew nor Greek, so the connection is the word nor. 
Then it says there is neither slave nor free. Then it says there's male, there's no male and female. And that's because in the Greek, the construction is different. It's Jew or Greek, right? Slave nor free. And then it's male and female. And there's a different connector. It's the word chi in Greek. Why is that significant? Well, a lot of commentators agree here. This seems to be hearkening back to Genesis 1.27. In Genesis 1.27, it says God made them male and female. And that fits the Greek translation Paul had at the time. So this is not a, a, a new observation. This is something most people, I think, recognize and agree on. There's no male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That's a hearkening to Genesis 1.27. So the question is this. Why is Paul hearkening to Genesis? What does he mean to do with that idea? Some egalitarians will try to leverage this idea and they'll say, hey, he's connecting it to Genesis 1 through 3 to show that any role differences based on original creation, right? See my second video in the series. Any role differences based on original creation, those things don't apply anymore in Christ. And they'll leverage this idea of um, first creation and then new creation. So, you know, maybe, maybe men and women, men and women were created differently and there is this unequal, like, authority between them in Genesis. But the new creation in Christ is of a different order. And Paul, just by putting the word and in there, he's trying to say that. So some, um, one scholar named Stendhal, he argues that this allusion to Genesis 127, it means the obliteration of gender, gender distinctions that were part of original creation. So there's a specific scholar who does that. I've made a case in video two in the series, I think a very strong one, that gender roles existed before the fall and after the fall, and they were distorted, and there's damage, and there's hardship, and there's all kinds of sin wrapped up in it. But at the core, there is a goodness that's there. That's my basic idea. But Witherington, Ben Witherington III, he's an egalitarian. He actually argues against this idea that some, um, that some egalitarians want to push. So let me give you a few reasons why Witherington argues against it. This is in his paper, uh, Right and Rights for Women, Galatians 3.28. This was published in 1981. Witherington has changed some of his views since then, it seems to me anyways, from reading his stuff, his old and his new stuff. But he says, here's three reasons. I think it's three. Um, two reasons, I guess. Why... You shouldn't make this connection to Genesis, shouldn't make too much out of it. He says nowhere else in Paul's letters does he indicate that those distinctions are obliterated. Like this is a pretty important point. Okay, so if Paul had this important principle that in the new creation in Christ, there's no male and female, if that means all gender distinctions in the church are obliterated, why doesn't he say it somewhere else? Why, if this is a principle that should be carried out to that extent, why doesn't he say it somewhere else? Um, his second reason against Stendhal here is that Paul uses Genesis 1 and 2 repeatedly to support gender distinctions in the New Testament times, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, in 1 Corinthians 6, I would also add, uh, in addition to what ben, ben Witherington says, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, he uses Genesis as the reason for why he's, he's observing gender distinctions in the church So and in marriage. And so... Um, so Paul clearly thinks they aren't obliterated. He still gives he still gets guidance for how men and women should behave from Genesis in the New Testament church. Therefore, we should be suspicious of any, and you guys should be too, because this stuff comes out all over the place. You should be suspicious of any egalitarian argument that relies on a distinction between creation and new creation. Because I see that as a way of just divorcing us from foundational things about how God made man and woman in Genesis. So that, that's a problem. 
So what then explains the connection between Genesis 1 and 2? That's a big issue. Why is there a connection between Genesis and Galatians? Specifically, no male and female. It's just this. And this fits the Galatians context a lot better than obliterating gender distinctions <laughs> in creation. The idea is that women don't need to marry a circumcised man or be married at all in order to be fully in Christ. You see, this is what was needed for, like, if you were a Jew, you w if you were, you know, within a Jewish context, and you're, like, thinking, how does a woman be a full participant in the covenant? She marries a circumcised man and raises kids in that environment. This is her, you know, the only the man got circumcised, and, you know, her connection is through her husband to a, to a degree. So this is not necessary. Uh, why does that fit Galatians? Well, in Galatians, in the book of Galatians, they were dealing with something in their city, Galatia, where these people were coming into the town called, we call them Judaizers. They were trying to make Jewish, make the church Jewish. The Judaizers would come into Galatia and they would likely not have only wanted the men to be circumcised, which we know that they demand the men to be circumcised and to keep the law, but they would have wanted for the women to be married to such men to be full participants in the community. So a woman's participation was connected to her husband. If there's no male and female in Christ, there's no slave, there's no Jew or Greek, Jew or Greek there's no slave or free, then what you're saying is you are fully participant, whether you're female, male, whether you're slave or free, whether you're Jew or Greek. It's not about obliteration. It's about inclusion of these different peoples into one people. So you're all one in Christ. That's Paul's application. Um, now, I struggled uh, for today's video, I struggled a bit with how to present it to you guys because I was beginning my research by looking at all these different scholars and trying to collect quotes on every different piece. And what I ended up doing was changing my mind. Um, I read Ben Witherington's recent stuff. I read Philip Payne's stuff. I read Gruthius and others. But what I thought was that um, Cynthia Westfall, one scholar who who's written in um, Discovering Biblical Equality, um, this is a, the new edition of the book, just came out in last November. And it's, you know, here she is on the cover, but this book is a bunch of egalitarian scholars. It's kind of probably likely in the future going to become sort of the go-to resource for proving egalitarian views from a scholarly position. So I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with this book quite a lot for that reason, because I want to future-proof my series. I want it to apply for many years to come. So in this book, chapter seven, Cynthia Westfall deals with Galatians 3 in particular, male and female, one in Christ. And I thought her work was very lucid and thorough. It was less, I hate to say these terms, okay? It was less meandering or, or hard to follow than some of the other work where I was like, wait, I, I hear you saying a lot of things, but I can't see your argument. I don't know what your actual argument is. It's more like you're preaching and not teaching kind of thing. I thought Westfall's work was more lucid and easier to follow. So her case looks like this. She says, in discovering biblical equality. What does the phrase, there is neither male nor female mean? Are the categories male and female now totally irrelevant in Christ? How do these three pairs relate? The three pairs being Jew, Jew Gentile or Jew Greek, slave free and male female. Those are the three pairs. How do they relate? These are our, our good important questions, right? And, and this is, in case I wasn't clear, getting excited. I'm working through her entire chapter right now. This is what we're going to, we're going to work through her whole chapter and try to find her reasoning and evaluate that. And then I'll give you a conclusion at the end of this video on Galatians 3.28. So these are important questions. She analyzes the following categories in her text. She says she'll look at the Greek language, the context of the immediate passage, the context of the whole letter, the context of the situation and culture, 
and she'll look at parallel Pauline passages that, quote, expand on the meaning of the text to help us understand that passage. So the immediate context is where she seems to start. So let's look at a quote from her. This is where Westfall provides her own translation of Galatians 3:26 through 29, which I'm going to say ahead of time, I think is pretty good. Okay, so it's a loose translation, but it's a good translation. It's a bit interpretive, but it works. Um, so here we go. This is Cynthia Westfall's translation of Galatians 3, 26 through 29. She has it as, So you are all God's children who have the status of sons in Christ through faith. Those of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no Jew nor Greek within him. There is no slave nor free within him. There is no male and female within him. But rather, if you belong to Christ, then you are the offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And then she footnotes author's translation there. So what's interesting about this is what you might not notice. I mean, I don't expect that you've memorized the passage here, but um, I don't think I've memorized the passage here. So, um, so yeah, it's a bit interpretive. She changes what in the Greek is you're all sons of God through faith in Christ. Like that's, it says your sons. It doesn't say children. It says your sons. She changes this to you, you're all God's children who have the status of sons through Christ. So instead of calling us all sons, it says we're all children who have the status of sons. I think that that is a good uh, presentation of the data in Galatians 3. So there's a really interesting thing. Um, a lot of Bible translations now, they want to be as inclusive, gender inclusive as possible. And, and I'm for this to a degree, personally. Not like it's up to me, but I'm just telling you my opinion. Right When, when it says brothers, um, you know, 100 years ago, men and women alike would have thought that meant men and women. Right. But but we've become so gender obsessed in our culture that we think brothers can only refer to men when we see, you know, certain things. It, it would help to just make it more clear for a modern uh, society that is so pretentious about gender issues. <laughs> and so that could be helpful just for clarity's sake. But in Galatians, it would be a mistake to translate sons to sons and daughters. Right. Where it says in Galatians three that we're all we're all sons. Let me show it to you in the ESV here. You are all sons of God. It really means to say that daughters are sons. That's what it means to say. You're all sons. But the reason for this is different than what we might think today. So a son in that culture did not have the same status as a daughter. The son had a different status. Um, we all have the son status, not the daughter status. That's, the, that's what's being taught here, which is why I think Westfall's translation is nice. It's better than remo removing the sonship idea entirely, like some translations might. Instead, it just keeps us from missing out. It's not saying, hey, ladies, you're all male. It's not saying that. It's saying you have the status of sons. Anyway, that's a good translation. I like that. So sonship status is the driving point here, and both sides should agree on that. You're a son, which means you have the full inheritance. You don't, you don't marry outside the family. You're not like passing through and you'll become part of another family or something, right? You have, you have a full inheritance. You, uh, you carry the family name. You have more rights before your family. Uh, anyway, do you get that? Your status is raised and men and women all have that status. Good stuff. Now the whole debate is going to hinge on what sonship status means and particularly how far you could stretch it. Can I stretch sonship status to mean, therefore I could be an elder too. Therefore submission in marriage is obviously wrong if we both have that status. So if we're going to answer the question of whether this sonship status applies to being elders, say in particular, 
we need to understand what Paul meant by it, and we have to understand it in context. So the context gives us, and here I'm going to show you my awesome graphic creating skills. <laughs> the context gives us four specific things, what it means to be a son, to have sonship status. So the first one, and I put it on your screen there, but I'm going to walk through these points. The first one is being an heir. All sons are heirs. That is, they have an inheritance, and we have an inheritance of all of creation and the kingdom of, of, of heaven. We all have a, a genuine equal inheritance in those things. So that's, that's important, whereas a daughter's inheritance was different than a son's, and it was more connected to her, her husband, right? But no, not, not this. This is we're all full sons. Uh, the second thing it is, this is in Galatians 3.29, by the way, right? And if you're all Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we inherit the spiritual promises and then that, that future heirship of, um, of what we gain in Christ, gaining the world, uh, the, rec the new creation that's coming. Then we have the second thing, full participation of being in Christ. This is, these are Paul's points, okay? These aren't egalitarian or complementarian. These are Paul's points. In Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith, or you all have that status of sons. This is, we are in Christ fully, and we're equal in Christ. So ladies, your relation, this is, this goes without saying, right? If you're a Christian, you just know this in your heart. Like your relationship with Christ is uh, as, as high as anyone's relationship with Christ. Your pastor, your, your husband, your, your neighbor, uh, the most godly person you know, you're all just in Christ and you all have this, this unity with Christ that's there. So you're a full participant of being in Christ. There's no half Christian. So one does not need to, this is, now let me apply it to Galatians just to give us the context here. Because what will keep us from misusing the verse is going to be understanding how it was originally intended. Right? So one does not need to proselytize to Judaism to become a Christian, to be fully in Christ. Some see this as racial status, but it was not just racial status, right? Because it's, it because you literally can't change that anyways. This is about... Um, not limiting salvation to those who are physical descendants of Abraham, who also affirm all the covenants and come underneath the law of Moses. The promises to Abraham regarding salvation aren't limited to just his bodily descendants. It can be those who have the faith that Abraham had. Paul is elsewhere going to affirm that the promises about the nation are still going to take place. And you could disagree with me on that. That's fine. That's not key to my case. But I think that that's important to mention. So one does not need to change from Jew to Gentile, or Gentile to Jew, right? You don't have to become a Jew to be saved. And guess what? Whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter. Your, your societal status doesn't matter as it relates to being in Christ. Slaves are free in Christ, even though they're still enslaved. One does not need to become male to be fully in Christ. Now you're like, how would you become male? Obviously, they're not really talking about some transition happening here. Rather, the female does not need to get access to Jesus through a husband or a male. That, that could be the way we look at that. Gender status doesn't matter. Whatever someone has, and here's my point, and this is, this is important that you guys get this. Whatever you have for being in Christ, whatever comes automatically with being in Christ, men and women all have that. Jews and Gentiles all have that. Slave and free all have that. We all have that. So if it's, if it's inherent to being in Christ, you get it. And as eldership inherent, we'll talk about that later. Um, the third thing is justification by faith. So Galatians 3.24, it says the law was our guardian in order that we might be justified by faith, right? When we come to Christ. So here we are, all of us, we're justified by faith. So to act like Gentiles are unclean and not to eat with them, which is what happens in Galatians 2, that violates this truth. 
this is important to remember later because the issue with Galatians 2 weighs in heavily. Uh, you, anyway, I'll, no spoilers here. You'll, you'll, we'll get there. So it's also true uh, that number four, internal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit is part of what it means to be a son in, in Christ, have that status. So Galatians 4, as Paul continues to talk about this stuff, in verses 6 and 7, he says, because you're sons, right? Well, that sonship status. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is so beautiful to me because you think about this. is saying the Holy Spirit enters into, in, men and women, enters into our lives. And because of Christ, because it's the spirit of the son, he's crying out, Abba, Father, so that the relationship Jesus has with the Father, this Abba close relationship, you get to cry out that way too. You have close and intimate relationship with God. This is part of being in Christ. Okay, this is what Paul's talking about. This is, um, this is what it means. This is seen in the amazing ritual of Christian baptism, and Paul talks about that in Galatians 2. That circumcision here is just for Jewish men, right? But, or male converts to Judaism. But baptism was entirely inclusive, right? Men, women, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, didn't matter what you were, you get baptized. Everyone gets baptized because they're all individually entering into the in Christness, the sonship status that they gain. This is a powerful claim. Baptism itself is a powerful, and you could call that like an egalitarian type thing, although it wouldn't, I guess that'd be, that'd be equivocation because I don't mean it the way they, do, they mean it. <laughs> so, um, but it's inclusive in a good sense. Um, so those four things, that's what I see in Galatians. Cynthia Westfall now needs to stretch that out to apply to being an elder. Um, every egalitarian does. And they all try to do this. The question is, can they be successful? Is the bridge they build between these four things to eldership, is that a sustainable bridge? Can you walk on it without falling <laughs> through? <clears throat> so Cynthia Westfall makes the following claim in her chapter, and I would agree with it wholeheartedly. She says in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, the identity of being baptized and placed within Christ is the primary or salient identity all members share regardless of race, nationality, social status, or gender. So I totally agree. Totally agree. But, and I have to add the but, in her work, as you read her book, this idea of your status, right? The idea is each person in a group has multiple identities that govern what role they play within that group. And that starts to turn into something other than the mere claim we can totally agree on. So we'll we'll get there when we get there. But just notice that these ideas about identity, it starts to turn into intersectionality is what it feels like for those who are familiar with that. <clears throat> All right. So Westfall seems to then try to build a bridge, which is what, what she needs to do, what the egalitarians need to do. Um, build a bridge from what we see in the list above, going from mere inclusion as sons and heirs, right, with the Holy Spirit, things which are related to being in the group, to function and roles that someone has within the group. Let me share with you the quote. Furthermore, different situations or groups bring different identities into play so that one identity will be more important than the others in a certain group. Now we're, now we're moving off to something that maybe Paul was not talking about Galatians, right? You, you need to build a bridge to this. But she says, which most often is directly related to the function and role that one has in that group. Sonship status is changing into function and role within the group. Now, you could, you could have sons that don't all do the same thing in the family. You know what I mean? It's, you need to build this bridge somehow. 
This is precisely what has to be shown to be the case. It's one thing to say that everybody in the group uh, gets the benefits of sonship because they're all in the group. But it's something else, and this is so key, I hope this one point lands for this video. It's something else to say that within the group, there are no distinctions regarding function and role that relate to the categories Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Modern and extremely broad categories like privilege, which is what is, is, is going to be brought in uh, here and elsewhere, I don't think they should be brought into this discussion because they're not in the mind of Paul. That would be what's called anachronism. So we're going to watch for more of that as we keep going. Um, <clears throat> so before we move on to the next quote, let me just remind us of these things. The general immediate context of Galatians, like if you were reading Galatians when Paul wrote it, you're not thinking probably about men and women in ministry unless the text says that's what's going on. But sonship is the issue. These categories should be seen to invalidate true sonship status. They, or they could be seen, but they should not be seen, right? Of men and women and Gentile and Jew and all that. Because in the Judaizers culture, which is the dilemma, the, the chaos that was going on in Galatia, these categories were, were being raised up to cause, you're not really fully a son. You're not really fully in Christ. You don't have the full sonship status. You need to do X, Y, Z before you can have it. So with Gentiles, to the Judaizers, Gentiles had to proselytize. They could um, then be somewhat included, right? They had, But they had to become Jewish, get circumcised, and they're still not really a child of Abraham or an heir of the promises that he gets. Slaves, they had lesser status when it comes to all things. They couldn't be equal in sonship in the eyes of the culture or Roman law. Sons would inherit what slaves would not in that culture. Sons had a relationship with their father that a slave did not with the master. But in Christ, they're all seen as sons. And women, women kept the family, uh, women did not get the family inheritance. It went to the men. This is, this is their culture, right? So they're seen as not carrying on the family name in the same way, right? You marry into to a husband and, and he carries, together you carry it on, but, but it's through him. The women married outside the family. They had lower access to what her, their husbands inherited. And a daughter didn't have the same relationship with her father that a son did. She didn't carry on the name or the legacy. So saying that all these categories, no, in Christ, it's totally different, you know, in relationship with God in the presence of the spirit and in the justification that you have in Christ and in your future inheritance and glory that's coming. These are the things Paul's concerned about. So how do you extend it? Um, that's what the rest of this video is about is, is can they, can they extend the things Paul's concerned about in Galatians to eldership status for women in the body of Christ? So one way to extend the application of Galatians 3.28 is by saying that one in Christ just means equal in all respects. Now, this is not to my knowledge anything that Cynthia Westfall says, but there are some egalitarians who make this claim. So some egalitarians will say, um, if we're one in Christ, let me put it back on the screen for you. Galatians 3, it says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if there's no male and female, we're one, we're all equal in all respects and they lean on the meaning of the word one so this gets around the problem of galatians okay it's not you know galatians itself doesn't seem to have a context about eldership at all but the word one is a very broad sweeping term and in the greek and often i call i call this pulling the greek over your eyes when people say well in the greek and they make something up because <laughs> um, you don't know the greek and most of you can't check it so you have to 
just trust someone. Um, but it gets around the issue, right? Galatians never mentions eldership at any point in the, in the book. Uh, Galatians is focused on justification and salvation's method and results, but it doesn't mention eldership. The view that one means equal in all respects is like saying, hey, you know, yeah, the context is not there, but, but the word itself is so broad that you have to allow women elders. So does one mean equal in all respects? I think Craig Blomberg can help us out on this one. Here's what he says. Um, I'll read the following quote. He says, to conclude from this one programmatic statement that Paul could not have consistently imagined any role differentiation between the genders in church or home throughout the whole church age simply violates the standard canons of logic, which is like a scholarly way of saying, guys, that's really dumb. <laughs> and he says, the word one, ace, that's the Greek word is ace, in this passage does not obviously mean equal in all respects, and this is important, in any of its other 344 New Testament usages. Equal, second issue, is not even a definition found in the standard lexica. Equality may be suggested in certain contexts, as, as with Galatians 3.28, but then we dare not infer more about the kind of equality envisioned than each given context warrants. This is significant. Equal is two things. It is not in the meaning of the word. When you look it up in lexicons, like that's not what ace means. It doesn't mean equal, it means one. And second issue, 344 uses in the New Testament, none of them mean equal in all respects, not once. This would be a very poor argument um, to make, but some people do make it, so I'll, I'll just mention it here so that no one thinks I've failed to cover something important. Um, let's go to back to Cynthia Westfall who says the following. This is her application of Galatians 3.28. According to this passage, men cannot have any sort of primogeniture status over, over women in the church or the people of God because of the order of creation. Remember, she's tying it to Genesis. So we should note that she's re really broadened the application, at least from the obvious things Paul's talking about, right? Justification, sonship status, that you know, you're, you're an heir in Christ, you have closeness with the Father through the Spirit, um, those types of things. Uh, she's gone way further than that. In fact, all those things relate to God. This is about inner human relationships. It's even a different kind of realm of discussion. So it's a new category. Men and their relationship with women in the church or the people of God, not sonship status with God. This move, I'm going to just say, if we do this, if we say that men, according to Galatians 3.28, here's the silver bullet, it shoots right through the idea that there could be any household roles, which we see clearly in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter, by Paul writing these things as well. This move, the silver bullet, would eliminate any male eldership that we see clearly in 1 Timothy and elsewhere. I've talked about that in part four, and I will talk more about 1 Timothy 2 in future video. This move would eliminate the silver bullet. It would shoot right through male and female role differences in 1 Corinthians 7. But this is what it's meant to do. It's meant to be the rule for how you interpret all these verses. These, these are role differences relating to men praying and prophesying, 1 Corinthians 7. Westfall's new category of going from uh, status in relationship to God and the kingdom to status in relationship to one another in every aspect in the church. There can't be any sort of primogeniture status over women. Then that's a big move. That's a big move. If we apply it to elder status, then isn't, I, I wonder, here's a challenge I'd have to egalitarians who might disagree with me here. If you apply this thing, this rule, there can't be any sort of status of over the church. 
doesn't this kind of start to feel like it's challenging the very idea of eldership? Because any elder, whether they're male or female, they're an individual who has a status of authority and a hierarchy that can't be allowed if every single believer has sonship status. And if sonship status means we all have that same status in, of eldership. If, if sonship is violated by somebody being an elder over you, then how do you have elders at all? And some egalitarians will, will try to strip elders of, of their authority. Elders have no authority. This, this, is, this is completely untenable. There's like, just, just look up the scriptures talking about the authority the elders have, um, the authority the apostles had, the authority Jesus had. Absolutely, there's real authority that's there. Um, so, yeah, this is why some do that. But <clears throat> anyway, let's go to the next quote. This is from Westfall who says, Again, about primogenitures, he says, everyone who's wrapped in Christ shares his status, which can be described as primogeniture, which is like firstborn. You're the firstborn. You're primogeniture, you're the first one. Um, let me just point out the difference between Westfall's point and Paul, the apostle's point here, at least as I understand it. Paul's point is we share in Jesus's inheritance of the kingdom and his relationship with God. Right, we, his his just status, his inheritance in the kingdom, and his his relationship with God. These are the things that we're sharing in by being sons. Westfall's point is that we have to add something to that that's not explicit in Galatians. We have to add to that that men do not have special status in other regards, such as being an authority in relation to their wives, which can be partly, though not remotely exclusively, derived from a principle of primogeniture that we see in Genesis two. I do think we see a principle of primogeniture in Genesis 2. However, I would have to say to reduce the complementarian argument to, oh, it's just primogeniture, is to ignore like six lines of reasoning that give a strong reason to see a Genesis 2 thing going on there, only one of them being that primogeniture thing, and, um, and to ignore other things in the New Testament that aren't specifically about primogeniture but still affirm you know, a husband's role. So did New Testament Christians, here's a question, did New Testament Christians, where the husband's a Christian, the wife's a Christian, the kids are Christians, did they give their sons a double portion of the inheritance? I'll bet a lot of them did. I'll bet a lot of them did, but how could they? Wouldn't that communicate lower status? Wouldn't that have been a violation of the very principle of what it means to be one in Christ? Were wives to submit to human, to husbands, to human? Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, most egalitarians will argue against this, but I think a lot of them, some of them will not. The more conservative ones are not. They're going to say, no, no, there's still roles in the household, just not in the church. But if you're going to affirm that, if you affirm that wives and, and husbands have different roles, doesn't that imply that the wife's status in Christ was not intended to change the husband-wife relationship fundamentally, like to, to, to destroy it, to dissolve it, the difference in authority? And then, of course, I had just the fact that elders exist, that some people are elders and others are not, just shows that some people having authority and others not does not violate your status in Christ. I think this is a problem. So let's talk about her application again. Here's another quote from uh, Cynthia Westfall. And she says here, Everyone who is wrapped in Christ shares his status. Just as in the case of Gentiles, this necessitates appropriate change in the customs within the church that communicate Outgroup status for women. Oh, I didn't put it on your screen. Because I don't have it. Um, okay, it would actually take me a minute to pull it up. I just, I just failed. 
I'd like to blame a cat, but I can't. It's my fault. Um, I'll read it one more time though, right? Everyone who's wrapped in Christ shares his status, just as in the case of Gentiles. This necessitates appropriate change in the customs within the church that communicate outgroup status for women. Note the phrase outgroup. It's very important for Westfall's case, uh, and I'd like to talk about it in a moment. So here's a key issue. Does male-only eldership communicate outgroup status for women? Now, you could, you could say, hey, Galatians 2 supports this because in Galatians 2, Paul uh, argues with Peter and those with him because the Jews wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. <clears throat> and this communicated a type of outgroup status to them. And so Paul sees this as, as being a conflict where they're challenging their very nature of being in Christ. And so he rails against it. And he, in Galatians uh, 2 and 3, he goes on to talk about it in more detail. Okay, so there's a case that could be made there. I'll talk more about Galatians 2 a little bit later. Against that, though, against that view is that elders are not in Christ in a greater sense than non-elders. Are elders more Christian? Are, are women told that the reason why they wouldn't be elders is because they're, they're less Christian? Or is it that it feels like outgrouping because that's the way we use the term today that probably would have meant nothing to Paul at the time. So not being an elder has no communication of being outside the group of those who are in Christ. And here's, here's where I think the outgroup terminology becomes really important in Westfall's work and others too. Outgroup is a modern term that has heavy meaning. And outgroup, when it comes to Galatians, if you want to use the term outgrouping, Paul doesn't want you to outgroup Gentiles. I would agree, if you mean by outgrouping, telling them they're not really in Christ. That's outgrouping. So if, if, if we're going to use outgrouping with Galatians, outgrouping means telling someone they're not in Christ. They're not fully saved. They're not fully cleansed. They're not full participants of what it means to just be in Christ fully. But the shoe, the shoe flips. Is that even a term? <laughs> the flip flops. <laughs> the term changes and you get this thing called equivocation where the term outgroup was used in Galatians to refer to telling someone they're not Christians, not truly saved, not fully in Christ, to telling someone that they're basically somehow different in any way. Um, if outgroup means not fully Christian, that's, that's how it is in Galatians. But if it means not eligible for eldership, that's not what Paul's talking about in Galatians. It's just not. And so we're, we're going to, you, do you see what we're doing is here's, here's culture and here's language. And they're mixing together in a way that's confusing for people. Let's take the term outgroup away for a second and say this. Paul's upset in Galatians 2 and elsewhere. The idea of telling these Gentiles through your actions, you're not really fully Christian. You're not fully clean. We can't even eat with you because you're unclean. Spiritually unclean. You're not fully justified in Christ. You don't have the full sonship status. You've got to become a Jew to get, to get the full status. And... He's opposed to this because it means they're outside of Christ, ultimately. And, um, and Westfall wants to change the issue and make it about eldership and say, well, telling your, someone you can't be an elder is telling them they're an out-group. But I don't see the connection. So we're building a bridge, ultimately, here that's not there. Um, let's go to number 17. This one says here, this is uh, Cynthia Westfall again. Being justified and putting on Christ at baptism entails all the benefits of membership in the context of Galatians. Now, this is actually what everyone agrees on, okay? We agree on this. And, and, and again, I'm evaluating the bridge, right? There's the stuff Paul says that we're all agreeing on, and there's the question of can you bridge that over to eldership? So we keep, we're just going to keep looking at different ways of bridging 
to consider whether those work. So, um, yeah, all the benefits of membership in the context of Galatians. That's that's true. We should not miss this. All the benefits of membership. Now, is is eldership, is being an elder, or even potentially being an elder, is that one of the benefits of membership in Christ? And I think the answer is no. Um, it's necessary. You have to be a Christian to be an elder, but it's not sufficient. It's not like every Christian is automatically, like, qualified to be an elder. It's it's insufficient. So unless every Christian can be an elder, not just potentially if they fit other requirements, right? No, no. If every Christian is part of the benefits of membership, you're in Christ, means you can be an elder. Like, that's all I need. Hey, here's my card. I'm in Christ. I can be an elder. Unless you can say that, you can't build that bridge very well. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We make some big mistakes when we start looking at leadership in the church as well. Side note, as a pastor, <laughs> we say, you make big mistakes when you look at leadership in the church as though it's a prize to be rewarded for personal satisfaction or to make other people feel good. And that sometimes is the way this discussion happens. Oh, you're, 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 you're stealing the dreams of other people if you don't allow them into these different positions. It was never about you. It's never about you. It was never about you. <laughs> Eldership's not about you. It's a service. Being a pastor, being a teacher, being these, it's a service that you do to others and it can turn into this pompous thing and this thing that's about me achieving my dreams and fulfilling my, 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 des my desires and making me feel like I'm a complete person who's like chasing all that God has for me and all these sort of like Disney romance type things. And it's just, it was never about that. Not biblically speaking. It just wasn't about that. It was about service and not self. So we can make some big mistakes. One of the mistakes of modern feminism, and I'm going to say this, you guys, I know you're not going to, some of you are not going to like it. But I hope you'll at least make sure you just to understand me. At least not like me accurately. <laughs> so here's, here's what you might not like. Um, one of the mistakes of feminism is to treat typical women's roles as lesser. To, basically, they're not as worthwhile as other roles, like being, say, a CEO. Which I don't care if a woman's a CEO, but I'm just giving an example. Those roles are considered more self-fulfilling. Having her own sort of career, that's more self-fulfilling than being like a stay-at-home mom. I know many women, even those listening, you feel in, you're, you're stay-at-home moms, you're homemakers, or whatever term you come up with to try to describe your job, and you feel embarrassed when people ask you what you do. Not, not because you don't like what you do or you don't think it's worthwhile or good or wonderful, but because you realize that typical women's roles have been so devalued that you actually think that you're like supposed to be embarrassed because you're just doing those things. This is a, a negative thing that's affecting our argument on egalitarian and complementarian stuff as well. Now, they'll never say it. Anytime, you know, you go, isn't it worthwhile to be, a, to be a mother? Isn't raising children like an amazing, look, the greatest privilege you'll ever have in life? You're like, oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is, you know? And they nod as they're thinking, oh, but you can't pursue your dreams and you can't fulfill your desires and, oh, you can't live your best self and all, you know, I mean, uh, so this is a self-fulfilling agenda. I'm going to fulfill me. I need to fulfill myself, right? It's contrary to biblical view of service and obedience. I start thinking that I'm crushing dreams if I don't give eldership positions to women and that that's the real problem is you're a dream crusher. I failed to let scripture have the option of teaching what it seems to teach on these topics. Basically, the, the saying is if it limits women, if it limits women, then it wrongs women. But what if some of those limits are godly? Maybe it's not wronging them. 
if I make this claim, if I fall for this thing, I believe that limiting women in any roles, in any roles, and I, I, I've, you know, I'm a very soft complementarian, so the limits that I'm going to suggest I, that I think are biblical are going to be a lot less than what a lot of people would anticipate. But if you think that limiting is inherently wronging women, then you have bypassed the Bible. You need to go watch the first video in this series. You've bypassed the Bible because now, no matter what the Bible says, you either have to A, disagree with it, or B, reinterpret it. These are your options. But you can't just let it, let it lead you where, you where you've decided you can't go. So here's an analogy by Westfall to see another option, another way of creating a bridge. How she bridges from status in Christ to function in the church, from status to function, from being in Jesus to eldership. And it's an analogy she offers, and it's kind of a longer quote, but I think it helps us understand. So she says here, the, the point of the metaphor is to say that believers' location in Christ can be viewed like an enveloping garment in which all differences are subsumed under the identity of being in Christ. Notice how big it got? All differences, all differences are subsumed under the identity of being in Christ. It has the same effect of members of a choir wearing a choir robe so that the audience is not distracted by the differences or individuality among the, the people in the choir. The primary identity of a choir member is that uh, in that context is that each one is part of the choir and the function of every member of the choir is singing. So the metaphor is sonship. The biblical metaphor is sonship, right? Her application is all differences are subsumed. This is, I, I hope that the exegetical stuff I did earlier with Galatians, looking at the specific things Paul applies sonship to, that you see this is a strong expansion. She's radically expanded beyond Paul's list of things he cares about and is concerned about in Galatians. It's by nature going beyond the meaning of the passage, way beyond. You, you would have read Galatians and never thought that it, about eldership. and never, Eldership never would have occurred to you in the book. Paul's metaphor is about sonship and how it relates to belonging and inheritance in Christ, but Westfall's metaphor is very different. Her metaphor is about function and role in interacting with each other within that body of Christ. His is about status of being in Christ. Hers is about function, different functions within Christ, and her analogy is that of a choir, which analogies are helpful, but they can be slippery because they get you to picture things a certain way that you haven't yet established to be the case. Let's look at Westfall's um, uh, equivocation or, or, or the equivalence she makes between uh, Jew and Gentile and male and female. This is quote number 19. All right. We may confidently conclude, she says, and she puts this in italics herself because she's like, I want you to get this point, right? We may confidently conclude that the ways and contexts in which there's no male and female inside him will correspond to the ways and context that Paul is talking about in Galatians in which there is no Jew or Greek inside him. Now, I'm going to agree with that statement. I fully agree with that statement, but I deny that that makes it about roles in the church because it wasn't about roles in the church in Galatians, so it's not about roles in the church because we're limiting it to the context that Paul is talking about, even according to... Um, Westfall. So if we limit ourselves to Paul's application, then the whole discussion seems like we're just taking stuff out of context. Do you see how like these broad sweeping statements you can get, but they're, they're presuming there's a bridge that they have not yet demonstrated exists. And so it takes you to 
uh, a place you weren't supposed to go. So this is another way that Westfall builds a bridge. It's through conflating these different concepts. So um, see if you can follow. I, I want, this is a little bit heady, the stuff we're doing today, as far as the kind of like, you, you, you're trying to jump into someone else's head and understand how they're conceiving something, uh, how they perceive it, and then you're jumping into the scripture to see if the scripture's perceiving it, the same conception is the same there. So here we go. See if you can notice in this rather long quote, if you can notice what is happening here, where the problems might be, where the conflation of different concepts is, and then I'll walk you through it. Identity in Christ cuts across competing identities of heritage, race, genetics, or one's genitals. This was revolutionary for Jewish believers since it was inconceivable that an uncircumcised male could, could be a full participant in spiritual functions in the people of God. And if representation of Jesus were dependent on one's body being like the body of Jesus, a Jew would never agree that an uncircumcised man's body could represent Jesus's circumcised body. But Paul's teaching that a Gentile male is now wrapped up in Christ like a garment means that he's fully identified with Christ and circumcision is now a circumcision of the heart rather than the physical body. Consequently, a Gentile male can represent Christ in any function. Because of the condition of his heart, even though in Judaism his body, genitals, would disqualify him from full participation, the implication implications for women are that they are also fully identify with Christ in the same way. So the fact that one's genitals are not like Jesus's similarly does not disqualify women from representing Christ in any function. Um, it's, I, I think a Jew would say that it's a little crass to just talk about it in terms of one's genitals. I think a Jew would think that even today, uh, even a non-Christian Jew, is it's not just your genitals. It's about making a covenant with God that you're not under. You're not in the covenant. And I think that they would make it about a lot more than that. So it's a bit crass to just reduce it to that. But they would think that that's a piece of the issue. Yeah. Um, so we can agree with the first part of this quote. We can agree with the first part, but not the rest. Because what happens is she moves categories. She moves categories from talking about belonging to Christ to representing Christ. Aren't, aren't these different issues? She goes from belonging to Christ to representing Christ. Do you see it? It's on your screen here. Right? We, we all belong to Christ, but full participation in spiritual functions in the people of God. And if representation of Jesus, wait, now we're talking about representation of Christ. Where does Paul talk about that in Galatians? Anywhere. Is, is it in Galatians at all? I don't know. I don't know if representation comes up. Consequently, a, a Gentile male, she says, can represent Christ in any function. And that's the second move. So the first move is to go from being in Christ to representing Christ. The, the second move is to go from representing Christ to in a really broad thing. I'm going to represent Christ in any function. So then her conclusion at the end of the statement is, Jesus similarly does not disqualify women from representing Christ in any function. Now, if you had just read Galatians and you'd asked, is Paul talking about representing Jesus in any function? I mean, it would have been like, it just doesn't seem like he's talking about that. I mean, whatever his views are on that, it doesn't seem to be in Galatians. So here's several problems with this idea, with this bridge that's, without clear justification, has jumped into representing Christ in any function. One, problem number one, right? Being in Christ is related by Paul to sonship status between you and God, being the seed of Abraham by faith, right? And heirship, having the Holy Spirit and being justified. These four issues. 
turning from that into a discussion of, quote, representing Christ in any function is to change the subject without Paul giving you permission to do that. Even though Christians, here's problem number two, even though Christians do represent Christ to an extent, this isn't what Paul's discussing in Galatians. He does talk about us representing Jesus in other places, but not really in Galatians. Galatians, the topic is salvation, justification, how we get saved, what the results of our salvation are, but not specifically representation. It doesn't come up. Um, point number three, in 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5, we have indications from Paul, right, that male and female have different ways of representing Christ when it comes to their inner relations. This, these are passages that directly talk about representing Christ in our different functions. And specifically, based on gender, 1 Corinthians 7 and Ephesians 5 show we don't do it the same way. This means that we've taken a passage, Galatians 3.28, that's not about representing Christ in all of our functions, and we've made it about that, and we've ignored passages that do talk about that in relation to gender. And just so you guys know, I'm going to be getting into 1 Corinthians 7. I think it's I think it's next week. I'm going to get into uh, male headship, that concept of male headship. That's next, next, next uh, time, whether it's next Monday or maybe two Mondays from now. I'm getting into that in detail. We'll get into all the debates of everything. Every, all debate all the time. <laughs> that's what we're going to do. So we have taken the silver bullet passage that doesn't seem to be about these issues. And we've used it to punch a hole through the passages that seem like they are about those issues. That's not... A good idea. Number four, adding the phrase any function, representing Christ in any function, goes radically beyond what Paul is talking about in Galatians. He's talking about belonging in the body and the benefits of sonship. He's not addressing every possible function you can think of in the body of Christ. He's just not. This 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 is like what I get on the internet, right? Like I'll, I'll put up a video, especially the shorts. I love the shorts that we've been doing on the channel. They're reaching a new audience and a lot of non-believers. I'm excited about that. But it's interesting when people encounter an analogy or a statement they don't like, how all of a sudden they like take what you're saying and they expand it way beyond what you meant. Because if they expand it, then they can make it look silly and try to respond um, to the silliness. And so they'll do the so you're saying thing. So you're saying, like I had this analogy about uh, about uh, Satan being and, and someone being thrown into a pool at a pool party. So you're saying that that uh satan's like our friend or something like so i'm saying <laughs> it's amazing how bad people are at understanding certain things when when it's inconvenient for them so um yeah it's a skill we all have um so now i want you to look at it again okay look at it again and notice the switcheroo notice in this long quote because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you, you can't phase out. You can't lose your attention. You have to read and think about the words on the screen. See the switcheroo from being in Christ to representing Christ and from representing Christ to representing him in every possible function so that the last sentence of this quote, it ends up coming out of nowhere. Um, identity in Christ, being in Christ, right? Cuts across competing identities of heritage, race, gender, or one's genitals. This was revolutionary for Jewish believers since it was inconceivable that an uncircumcised male could full be a full participant in spiritual functions in the people of God. And if representation of Jesus were dependent on one's body being like the body of Jesus, huh? a Jew would never agree that an uncircumcised man's body could represent Jesus's circumcised body. But Paul's teaching that a Gentile male is now wrapped up in Christ like a garment means that he's fully identified with Christ and circumcision is now circumcision of the heart rather than the physical body. Yay. Consequently, a Gentile male can represent Christ in any function 
because of the condition of his heart, even though in Judaism, his body, genitals, would disqualify him from full participation. The implications for women are that they are also fully identified with Christ, yay, in the same way, so that the fact that one's genitals are not like Jesus similarly does not disqualify women from representing Christ in any function. Do you guys see what I see? If I'm wrong, someone show me how. Specifically, because I will look at your review of me and I will stop looking when you stop representing me accurately. Um, note again how Westfall expands the application. Here's another moment of, of, of building a bridge, taking what Paul's talking about, justification, bringing it really far out onto other topics he's not talking about. And this is here, quote number 22. She says, there are no privileges or authority in the church based on, on the ontology of race. Now, I'm not saying here that there are privileges or authority in the church based on the ontology of race. I'm not saying that. I'm not making that claim. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that's not what Paul's talking about in Galatians. <laughs> privileges and authority in the church based on, the, he's talking about being in the church at all. Being fully justified and cleansed in the church. He's talking about that. That's the issue at hand. Paul mentioned specific benefits of being in Christ, and they do not encompass all conceivable privileges or authority. There may or may not be authority based upon other things in Scripture. There may or may not be privileges, if you want to call them that, based on other things. But he's just not talking about that. For example, based on Galatians 3.28, it would be wrong to say people are not fully part of the body of Christ due to social status, gender, or Jewish law keeping. But it does not automatically follow that anyone who's fully part of the body of Christ can be an elder in it. It might be the case. It might not be the case. I'm not saying Galatians 3.28 proves the complementarians are right. right? I, I'm just saying you have to look at passages that teach on those issues, not passages that don't, if you want to be able to understand it. Now, whatever our interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, we have to make sure it, it, it works with Galatians 3. I'm just saying Galatians 3 is not about the same thing as Timothy 2. And that's important. Um, so here, here we go again. Here's another, um, another move. Same move over and over again. In the context of Galatians, when Paul makes um, there is no slave nor free, there is no male and female, parallel to there's no Jew or Greek, right in the middle of his argument, he's indicating that a similar scope of change in the culture, social practices, and authority structure of the church needs to be implemented to abolish entitlement, and discrimination in the church in these other core social relationships. Now, here's the question. When I read that statement, a lot of you are probably like, yeah, like, I don't know about all the logic of it, but it just feels right. It feels right. It feels good. Let's abolish entitlement and discrimination. Let's, let's, let's do this thing, you know? Um, the culture, the social practices, the authority structure of the church has to be changed so that these categories, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave free, that they cannot be seen in respect to those, to those, um, those things. There's two issues. There's two reasons why I find this unconvincing and other people, I think, do. One, Paul doesn't say those words. Does he say entitlement? Does he say discrimination? Does he say authority structure in the church? Does he say culture or social practices? These are all big buzzwords today, but they're not things that Paul talks about. He's offering, and I'll say this again, and I'm going to say it a million times if I have to. 
He's offering sonship status that the people of God have. He's not giving an overarching abolishment of differences. Some people would call entitlement. Some people would call discrimination in human relationships within the church. He's just affirming they all have sonship status. In other words, Westfall changes two things when she moves to application of Genesis 3.28. She reads it, observes it well, but when she applies it, there's an exegetical problem and a philosophical problem. Sub point number one, on point number one of why I don't accept this this argument. Um, The exegetical problem is this. She changes from Paul's focus on relationship with God and general oneness in the body to social dynamics, dynamics of power, privilege, uh, discrimination, entitlement, these things, and general um, uh, to so- social dynamics uh, of how men and women interact, an issue which does not appear in Galatians anywhere. That's the exegetical problem, right? We're, we're, we're saying, Paul, so you're saying to Paul, so you're saying, and I, I think that it's, it's just not there. There's a philosophical problem too. She emphasizes entitlement and description, discrimination, excuse me, as the summary of Paul's concerns, right? These are the things. He wants to abolish entitlement and discrimination. That's the summary of what Paul's worried about. But these words carry wide-ranging meaning in the wake of feminism and critical theory that I'm not trying to make boogeymen, right? Like, let's just be sober-minded here. They do honestly carry wide-ranging meaning in the dictionary that they did not carry, you know, 200 years ago or 2,000 years ago for that matter. They're not the same as the issues addressed in Scripture, Here's Paul. Paul's saying, hey, don't act like every Christian's not fully a Christian and totally justified. They're all given sonship status. They're all made an heir of the coming kingdom. They're given the Holy Spirit. They have deep relationship with God the Father. They are clean in Christ. Here's Westfall. All the issues of discrimination and entitlement that critical theory or feminism targets are being affirmed by Paul here. So voting, equal pay, women in leadership, women not having to submit to their husbands in the old school sense. All that's Now, some of those things may or may not be good. My big issue is don't project those things onto Paul when he's not talking about that, right? This is a philosophical problem. I've brought in philosophies I've bought into that Paul didn't, didn't know about, probably didn't agree with, didn't know about though, and I've projected them onto the text of Galatians so that this becomes what's called a feminist reading of Scripture. When you have a feminist reading of Scripture, a liberation theology reading of Scripture, what you do is you're bringing these, these philosophical commitments into your understanding of Scripture that color what you see and they basically turn the Bible into an anachronistic document for you. I, I, I read it and everything fits into whatever sort of social issues that I'm you know, focused on, whether the original author would have agreed with that or not. So now here's a legitimate pushback you might have. It's about Galatians 2. Um, you might say, Mike, Galatians 2 proves her point because it relates to social interactions, right? As you survey Galatians, it doesn't look like it's very social, but Galatians 2 is social. Galatians 2. So we're going to read through a portion of Galatians 2 and we're going to ask if this builds a bridge to social and issues of discrimination. And it will look like it does because you're wired to think that way. But if you look at it in the context of the whole book of Galatians and what Paul is talking about, you find that you are just being anachronistic. You're reading your concerns into scripture instead of getting scripture's concerns. So let's see if I can make good on that claim here. Galatians 2.11. When Cephas, that's that's Peter, or Kephas, or Kephas, or dude, some people call him dude. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So here, Peter visits Antioch, and Paul's like, you, 
he was he really really blew it in a big way and then now he's going to explain why for before certain men came from james that is from jerusalem he was eating with the gentiles this is what peter was doing he ate with the gentiles that was something jews didn't tolerate especially in jerusalem but when they came he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party now this is important the reason why he pulled back is super important paul is not um pulling back from eating with the Gentiles because he's socially ashamed to hang out with them. He's pulling back because a group of people came who teach that Gentiles have to be uh, circumcised in order to be saved. Catch that? They have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So they think, Paul, they're not really fully Christian. Paul goes, or, for what, or Peter, for whatever reason, for his own reasons, right? He goes and he eats with the Jews. And he's not eating with the Gentiles. They certainly won't eat with the Gentiles. He eats with them. Paul's like, hey, this is intolerable. What you're doing, I will not tolerate this. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So then other Jews left the Gentiles too. This is, is it discrimination? Yes. But is the reason Paul's upset because it fits in the category called discrimination? No. Paul wasn't against all forms of discrimination, not in, not in the old sense of the word. He's just not. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then he goes on to talk about how we're, how we're justified. So two more verses. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Is Paul's problem with what <clears throat> Peter did, that it was discrimination in the broad category of the modern, modern sense of the term, um, which is very often a very bad thing. I'm not like, oh, Mike's pro-discrimination. No, you, just, you, you probably shouldn't watch my channel. You don't like thinking carefully about things. <laughs> um, um, no, his problem is not that it's discrimination in general. Paul's concern is that it's a particular discrimination, not even that it's discrimination, right? It, it's a particular activity that is communicating to these Gentiles and to other Jews that are there, all the bystanders, right, that Gentiles can't be saved until they're circumcised and they observe the law. So Paul's response is, guys, the message you're sending is that they're not in Christ until they be circumcised, that they're not fully sons in Christ until they obey the law. And you're, you're eating with a circumcision party who's teaching this stuff. This is terrible. This is wrong. I'm going I'm to stand up and I'm going to shout about it. So this is not the same thing as talking about eldership. This is what Paul's talking about when he says, in Christ, you have sonship status and heirship, right? You're a son of Abraham. You, um, you have uh, the, the Holy Spirit and a close relationship with God and you are justified in Christ. The four things that Paul's caring about, they're in Galatians 2. So it relates to the topic, but it's not social interactions as a broad category. It's not. It's just not. So um, in Galatians 2, the problem is that Gentiles are being treated not as second-class citizens with full status in Christ, but they're being treated like people who aren't even in Christ. Now you're starting to get it, right? Like the, <clears throat> the women in ministry issue about eldership it's a thing like, hey, we think that makes them second-class citizens. And I don't think that's true. But even if you think it's true, it doesn't apply to Galatians 2. There may be other issues with it, but it's not Galatians 2. There may be other problems with it, but it's not Galatians 3. 
the issue is their status in, re in relationship to Paul's concerns about sonship, relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, future inheritance, justification, those types of issues. That's why Paul is so bothered. I can demonstrate that status as full heirs, and catch me here. Um, yep, there's debates on First Peter. We'll go through First Peter in a little bit more detail in the future, but when I do a, a whole week on a whole certain, uh, video on men and women in, in marriage and their relationship as regards to this debate, but I can demonstrate to you using First Peter 3 that we have full status as heirs in Christ. You have full sonship status, men and women. But this does not refute the idea of different roles for men and women in the church or marriage. I, can, I think I can prove it with Scripture very, um, very simply and straightforward. So First Peter chapter 3, we'll just look at a few verses here. Verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Right? Be subject to them. This is the idea of, of them... You know, there's still an authority in their home, but there is a sense in which they look at their husband as being that final authority in their home. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won by the, by a word, without a word by the conduct of their wives. Okay, so the, the wives are called to submit even in the case of being in an unequally yoked marriage. Um, but then as you go to verses 5 through 7, look at what it says to husbands because it warns them. Um, first, okay, a little bit more on wives, right? Just so you can see how strong this is. Peter's not ashamed of this. It's not just cultural bowing. It seems to be something he thinks is godly. First Peter 3, 5. I'll talk more about it in a future video. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, here's what it says to husbands. Because here's the egalitarian claim. Not by all egalitarians. Many egalitarians will reject husband and wife roles. Uh, others will not. So some egalitarians, this does not apply to you. But the ones who reject those husband-wife roles, I think this is a defeater for your position. Because they'll say, look, in fact, I think it defeats both positions. Because they'll say, look, if, if a woman can't have these roles related to authority, then you're effectively taking away her status in Christ. You're saying she's not fully, fully, fully in Christ. She doesn't have the equal status in Christ. But look at the reasoning here in 1 Peter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Women have weaker physical vessels. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. What does that phrase mean? Women are heirs with you, men. But guess what? They're still called to submit. But they're still heirs with you. Why doesn't Peter think that this destroys their equality in Christ? I think the answer is because it doesn't. But my real point here is, if, if you have this paradigm, if a woman can't be an elder, she's not fully Christian. She's not fully in Christ. That's not the paradigm that the Bible has. That's a paradigm you've got that you're putting on the Bible, which makes you have to reinterpret it, I think, in these cases. In fact, it even threatens the husband so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, you mistreat your wives. You treat her as less than a full Christian, less than fully an heir in Christ and the glory that's to come. Um, then it's going to hinder your prayers. This refutes chauvinistic impulses of husbands, you know, abusing their uh, their authority and their role, but it also affirms roles. Again, we'll talk more about that later. Ephesians 5 does this as well. We'll cover it later. Many egalitarians say that any restrictions were just cultural, but that backfires against other egalitarians. Oh, they just did that for cultural reasons. Um, other egalitarians will say that any restriction compromises your status in Christ, which is the issue today. Galatians 3, 28. Oh, if you have different roles, you're, you're taking away their status in Christ. You're, you're killing Galatians 3, 28. But then other egalitarians will say, but those, even the restrictions you see were just there for cultural reasons. But Paul would never, for cultural reasons, allow someone to strip your status in Christ. 
So here we have internal conflicts within egalitarian camps that need to be worked through. Um, remember, Galatians 3.28 is the silver bullet, right? So step one, recap a little bit of what we've done so far. Expand the meaning of Galatians from sonship status to include every function and every role in the church. So huge expansion of meaning. Step two, make it a rule for how you can interpret the rest of the Bible so that other passages that seem to indicate things like male headship, that can't be the case. Because Galatians 3.28 proves that that's not allowed. So here is an example. Um, some are going to think I'm making this up. So here's a, another quote on how it's used to override theology. I'm going to share this with you again, but we'll look at it in a bit more detail. Westfall says, um, this does not override any identity of male and female that may be legitimately drawn from creation account, but it overrides certain theological constructs. Now she thinks complementarianism is a theological construct, but that's yet to be shown. I think it seems biblical, but it overrides that. It overrides complementarianism is the point about the significance of what's differentiated in creation and negates the assumed correlation between various functions in the church and gender roles. Um, yet scripture seems to affirm those things. But the point is Galatians 3.28, it makes that impossible. Again, another one we'll look at. This is how F.F. F. Bruce said it. He says, Paul states that the basic principle here is what? If restrictions, he states the basic principle here in Galatians 3.28, the silver bullet. If restrictions on it are found elsewhere in the Pauline corpus, as in 1 Corinthians 14, which we will look at, or 1 Timothy 2.11, which we will look at, they are to be understood in relations to Galatians 3.28, not vice versa. What that means is that um, you have limits on how you're allowed to interpret the rest of the Bible because of Galatians 3.28. Do you see what I'm seeing here, right? This passage is transforming. It's from, it was about, about being in Christ to becoming this overarching rule for all gender-related issues in church government, even dictating to us how we can interpret the rest of the Bible, but it's not even about those things in context anywhere in the book. Here's a good hermene hermeneutic rule, right? for studying the Bible. Hermeneutics is like the art and science of studying, you know. So hermeneutic rule for studying the Bible. Clear passages help us with unclear passages. That's absolutely true. When Paul's talking about really specific issues here, but Peter said it really vague over here, we'll help, we'll let Paul give us clarity. Here's a bad hermeneutic rule. Passages about one thing telling us how to interpret passages that are about a completely different issue. That's a bad rule. That's the Galatians 3.28 silver bullet. It, it's a, it is... I think that egalitarian views, the, the mishandling of the text of scripture is rife in egalitarian positions. It's rife. And um, I don't want to pull punches there because it's sacred to handle the word of God well. It is sacred to do this. And you see what I'm seeing. It's a serious problem. I want to also look at how... And many egalitarians, and, and complementarians do this too, right? They can they can talk about egalitarians with um, basically um, portray their arguments different than they are, which is why I'm putting quotes on the screen for you over and over again to demonstrate these really are the arguments that we're getting. We're getting them from real top egalitarians. But sometimes egalitarians don't realize that complementarians are being misrepresented. So here's, um, at least some of us are, some, some complementarians are pretty lousy. Um, so just quote them. You don't have to misrepresent them. They look pretty bad. She says here, uh, those who restrict the meaning of Galatians 3.28 to an abstract or eschatological meaning, meaning like sometime in the future meaning, 
um, tend to assume that gender is the salient identity in the church rather than our identity in Christ, which goes against Paul's teaching on several counts. Now, I remember reading this and thinking, what? Like, A, who's making it abstract or eschatological? You are right now filled with the Holy Spirit. You're a son, son status with, with, with God. You can cry out, Abba, Father. You are justified right now. You have been cleansed of your sins. You're a full participant in Christ. You are an heir. And that is eschatological. There's, there's this future inheritance that's coming your way. There's, a, there's an element there. But I don't, who reduces it to an abstract or eschatological meaning? That just seems nuts to me. I don't, I mean, huh? <laughs> um, or the idea that w we, a, a complementarian like myself, would assume that gender is the salient identity in the church? I, I don't understand this. It seems entirely inaccurate. If I say that women aren't supposed to be elders by virtue of their gender, or at least in relation to their gender, am I saying that 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 status is the identity of what it means to be in the church? Is that what I'm saying? That gender is the salient identity in the church? No. The primary issue in the church is salvation and oneness in Christ and the eschatological yeah, benefits that it brings. Whoever can or can't be an elder for any reason isn't being told that their identity in Christ is in question. Westfall has traded in Christ for in leadership in her points. That's a serious problem. So here's my pushback would be to say this to, to, to Cynthia Westfall. And I, I say this as a brother who loves you, thinks you're a real believer, thinks that you, you love God. I think that these are, I'm trying to demonstrate, I think, real, real problems and errors that are going on here that are pervasive enough to require um, real refutation. But my pushback is to say this on your, on your view, on Westfall's view, the salient quality that identifies you in the church is the ability to be an elder. It's not about being male and female. It's about being an elder. If you can't be an elder in the church, then your your salient identity is is damaged and compromised. So to me, salient identity is being in Christ, and it, it, it comes to the benefits Paul talks about in Galatians, but it seems like to Westfall, your salient identity is the ability to be an elder. If one can't be an elder, their very status in Christ is now in question. This is a major problem with most egalitarians' perspectives on Galatians 3.28. Eldership has been exalted into this like, it's an all or nothing thing, right? You're in Christ. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, oh, I'm forgiven. Good. Am I justified? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Am I a future heir of all things in Christ? Yes. Do I have a close relationship with, with the Father through the Son? I can cry, Abba, Father. Yes, you absolutely do. Can I be an elder? No. Oh, oh, none of the other stuff really matters very much now. This is, this is how it feels, and I think that's a problem. Um, I like what Tom Schreiner says about this. And we're getting cl cl close-ish to the end here. No, or, or we're not. We're getting close. Never mind. We have three hours left. Just hang in there. Um, he says, The fundamental purpose of Galatians 3.28, in context, is to say that both men and women have equal access to salvation in Christ. The Judaizing opponents had rocked the Galatian churches, causing them to wonder if one had to be circumcised to be saved. Paul reminded them that one belongs to the family of Abraham by faith alone. One does not need to become a Jew and receive circumcision in order to qualify for membership in the people of God, nor are the people of God restricted to males. Anyone who believes in Christ, whether male or female, is part of God's family. Um, that's in um, uh, Two Views, page 274. If you guys want my notes, again, you can check the link below about an hour after the stream. I'll put a link up on the bottom there that will be a link to my notes. You can download them for free from my website check the footnotes of everything I'm doing. I even have extra stuff in there that I don't talk about during the stream that you're welcome to look at.
So some egalitarians might say, Mike, you're not being fair. You're treating the Jew, Gentile, and slave-free distinctions differently than the male-female ones in Galatians 3.28. This is pushback I would bring. Okay, this is pushback that I feel is, is, is more substantial. Right? The idea here is that the same way that Jew and Gentile and slave and free distinctions have gone, so are male and female ones also gone. On the complementarian view, the, the, the egalitarians are like, hey, you're making women the exception to that rule. So I think that there's a parallel in all these relationships. I don't think women are the exception to the rule here. I think we're just misunderstanding Galatians. We're, again, we're broadening things more than Paul intended. So let me run through briefly these three pairs, Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female, and show how while they're all in Christ, they're not all removed of every distinction in the context of a church. So... Uh, Jew Gentile is probably the easiest one to talk about. So you might have missed this, and I have a video on this I'll, I'll link down below, but um, Paul never argued for Jews to stop obeying the law, but he absolutely argued that they could not put that on Gentiles. Why is that? Why is it that Jews could continue to obey the law after getting saved, but Gentiles were told not to? Because even though they were all in Christ, there was still some notable difference between Jews and Gentiles. The apostle... Um, the apostles themselves, right? They continued observing the law, at least for the most part. They continued observing the law long after the resurrection of Christ. Peter, when he has his vision and the, the blanket comes down before he goes to see Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, right? This is not the earliest moment in the church. He says, I have not eaten anything unclean. He was still observing those ritual eating laws, even though they were not allowed to put them on Gentiles, but they were still observing them. The Acts 15 council was not about whether Jews would observe the law. They were presuming that Jews would continue to observe the law. It was about whether Gentile Christians should observe the law. So Jewish Christians did. Gentile Christians did not. There is a difference between Jew and Gentile in the church. It's not related to sonship status. It's not related to the things in Galatians. But there's still a difference. Paul didn't care that these Judaizers were themselves circumcised or obeying the, the feasts and stuff like that. He cared that they were dumping it on Gentiles. There is a distinction. Um... A scripture that weighs in on this. This is stuff that I think people don't notice when they're reading the scriptures because it, we, we have to think in terms of Jew-Gentile a lot when you read the Bible if you want to understand things in context. You've really got to load these concepts in your head and see them all over the place. And then you'll understand a lot of the scripture better. So in verse 18, it says, was, uh, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Paul gives advice. Were you circumcised? Eh, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Yeah, just just stay, just stay how you are, right? Just remain in the condition in which you were called. He's like, you were a, you were you were a Jewish obeying the law. Go ahead. You weren't. Okay, well, don't. Perfectly fine. Paul still acknowledges that Jew and Gentile distinctions are relevant for believers. He just doesn't acknowledge their relevance in relationship to your justification and your status with God. Jews are able to continue obeying the law after they come to Christ. Gentiles are actively discouraged from doing so. This strikes against over-applying the text. For more on this, I have a video down below. It's in response to the Hebrew Roots movement, and it goes through the book of Acts to look at the Jew-Gentile issues in the book of Acts. You'll understand Acts better than ever before if you've not tried to do this on your own. Let's talk about the slave-free distinction. Um, if one is a slave and we're to extrapolate this to its fullest extent, if we treated the slave and free distinction the way egalitarians are treating the male-female one, um, then why are slaves still encouraged to be obedient instead of told that they're free? Now, I think that the Bible does support, right, uh, 
well, I'll just, I'll just, I, I need to do another video. There's a guy I want to interview on this topic of slavery in the Bible. It's, it's, it's the topic people have the hardest time thinking clearly about. But notice this, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 22, same chapter we were already just in. He says, were you a bond servant when called? Don't be concerned about it. And then he encourages them. Hey, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Paul, if you can get free, he wants you to get free. But if you're not, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. So a slave was freed in Christ. He was free. But he was still a slave. He was still a bondservant in relation to that master. And unless he could get his freedom and through some, you know, means, then he just continued to serve and honor God in it. Even if the master was also Christian, this could still take place. Now, it should change their relationship radically. Just as husband and wife, the relationship changes radically. So we see there's still some differences there. Now, I do have a video on the topic of slavery. I know this brings up questions and then people get derailed on it. So I have a video I, done, I already did on slavery. I need another one sometime. But um, that's down below in the comments where I analyze things. Like, did you know that um, every city in Israel was a sanctuary city for runaway slaves? Did you know that? That's in the law. Um, then we get to the male-female distinctions. Okay, there's differences in marriage roles and eldership. They're clearly taught in Scripture. I've already demonstrated much of that in this series. That doesn't prove anything because it's perfectly parallel. The Jew-Gentile distinction in Christ, no difference. But there's still some things to note about them. The slave-free distinction in Christ, you're free. But there's still practical issues that have to be dealt with with slavery. Male-female, that goes back to creation. This isn't something you're told to try to undo. Um, so what I'm not saying is that slaves or Gentiles couldn't be elders. What I am saying is that the continued observation of differences in Christian behavior between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, and male and female, it indicates that Galatians 3.28 was never supposed to be taken as broadly as egalitarians do. If distinctions between these groups remain, even though they all participate fully in being in Christ, then distinctions between men and women can continue so long as we affirm that they all participate fully in being in Christ and treat them as true Christians, full heirs, with the respect and dignity and honor that, that should come with that. Now, here's a very rhetorically powerful version related to everything I've just said. Um, here's, here, here's what I would, I, you know, as I was studying this thinking, here's the thing that if someone said it on the spot, I'd be like worried that I might not answer it well. <laughs> so what if those who say to me, Mike, if someone came to you and said, Gentiles can't be in leadership, you could rightly respond that there's no Jew or Gentile in Christ, right? Now, as I asked myself this question, trying to give myself like the hardest, you know, rhetorically difficult thing to answer, I thought, yeah, I suppose I could. I mean, this, this gets me in the gut. This argument gets me in the gut because it would only be natural to apply that to slaves and women as well, right? If, well, if, if, if a Gentile can be an elder because there's no Jew or Gentile in Christ, can a slave be an elder? Well, yeah, I guess so. And if a slave can be an elder, then why can't a woman? Gosh, I guess so. You're right. You're showing an inconsistency in my views. So how can I push back and say that I apply this to Gentiles or slaves who I think can be appointed to eldership, but I don't apply it this way to women? So I would answer it this way for you guys to think about. Hypothetically, if you went to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Titus and you found that the requirements for elders was in addition to what we find there now, that a candidate for eldership has to be a Jew. How would you respond? This is important. Let's suppose 1 Timothy 2 tells us an elder must be a Jew. 
how would you respond? I'll tell you how I would respond. I'd say, okay, I can't be an elder. Is that an option? Is that option on the table for you? If it's not on the table for you, then you understand that what 1 Timothy 2 says doesn't matter to you. I'd probably respond that while Gentiles have full status and sonship in Christ, God has his reasons for why he wants Jews or elders, Jews for elders, and we should honor that. I'd conclude that I shouldn't apply Galatians 3.28 to eldership and that the mistake was applying Galatians 3.28 to eldership in the first place. That, that's how I think this works. I think the clear explains the unclear. So in response to this basic idea, like wouldn't you say, you know, there's no Jew or Gentile in Christ? I think the better response to saying someone says only Jews can be elders is to say, well, there's no teaching that says that and the specific requirements for elders don't, don't inc doesn't include that. I don't think Galatians 3.28 should be the go-to passage on that issue. So here's one more way to build a bridge. Um, we'll go to, I think this is the last quote I have for you guys. And then just more talking. Um, this is uh, this is really interesting. Um, oh, I don't have the quote. Okay, this is for a moment from now. Let me come back to this one in a second. That's that's a side note that I thought you guys would find really thoughtful. Okay, so here's the quote, and it says, uh, regardless of whether one identifies, this is um, Westfall again. She's going to use the term dynamics of power here. She says, regardless of whether one identifies the main theme of Galatians as justification or new creation, the purpose of the letter was to deal with cultural conflicts, the dynamics of power, and the tension between law and liberty. So she thinks the, the purpose, the big overarching purpose of Galatians, not just in the passage, but the whole book, is cultural conflicts, dynamics of power, and the tension between law and liberty. Is that true? Um, Okay, so I'll briefly just, I, I could spend way too much time on this. So I'm just going to briefly say this. Cultural conflicts is a vague and unhelpful term. It is vague and unhelpful for Galatians. Galatians is about very specific conflicts, not just cultural conflicts in general. Like Paul's like, I wanted to write you about cultural conflicts. Like he's not what he's doing. Um, literally everything can be a cultural conflict. Um, the term dynamics of power? No, that is simply not in Galatians. Dynamics of power? Now, you could, with a critical theory lens or a feminism lens, you could look at Galatians and go, that's what we call dynamics of power. But you've turned it into a category that you operate in that Paul is probably completely unaware of. This is critical theory or feminism in Bible study. And it extends the application of Galatians far too far. Is it about the tensions between law and liberty? Sort of, I wouldn't use the term tensions there. Um, uh, it's, it seems to me like it's about justification and the, the method of how we get saved and the benefits of our salvation. That seems to be what Galatians is about. So when we make Galatians about critical theory, <laughs> you end up with egalitarianism. You, you have to, because that's what you started with. That's what you made it about. So I have one more pushback that I wanna offer. And then I'll give my thesis and my conclusions for today. Thank you guys for hanging in with me, by the way. So here's my pushback. The egalitarian view makes Paul's phrase to apply so wide and far, um, but other Jews have used similar language and they never meant it that wide and far. And the, the bottom line here is these quotes I'm putting on screen, these are, these are Jews who had really strong restrictions for women, but they were using the same kind of terminology as Paul and they didn't think it applied to those things. 
This is only to say, the phrase, no male and female, this is a phrase that the, the culture would have understood to mean less than what the egalitarians are thinking. So Ben Witherington actually points this out, at least in 1981 he pointed it out. He seems to have changed his position to some degree, um, from what I can tell anyhow. In his book, uh, Right and Rights for Women, um, I think I have a link for it down below. But you got to buy it. It's like a journal article. It's like super expensive because journal articles are like that. So here's the quote. Um, and, and he says, you know, that uh, Madeline Boucher is the one who pointed out that, this, that there's these Jewish rabbis. Jewish rabbis who go back to ancient times who uh, made these types of statements about women's equality with men before God, or they assumed it's truth, without any implications that all social distinctions or role differences were obliterated in that community. So... The first quote is that we read in Seder Eliyahu Rabbah 7, quote, I call heaven and earth to witness that whether Gentile or Israelite, man or woman, slave or handmaid, reads this verse, the Holy One, blessed be he, remembers the binding of Isaac. They can appeal to God for help They can, and, and he will hear them is the idea. Um, male or female, it's indis indistinguishable. Yet this, this same rabbi who wrote this is going to you know, hold strong distinctions between men and women in functions and roles. More explicitly, the second quote, uh, dealing with equality is the saying by Rabbi Judah bin Shalom, may while commenting on Psalm 56, uh, verse 3. In Exodus, Rabbi Beshalah 21.4, I've got these on the screen and they're in my notes if you guys need them. Here's the quote. If a poor man says anything, one pays little regard, but if a rich man speaks, immediately he's heard and listened to. This is a complaint. And then he says, before God, however, all are equal, women, slaves, poor, and rich. Right, in relation to God, in relation to his, 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 uh, his, his listening to you and his judgment and his justice, yeah, you're all equal. But this didn't mean like, ah, well, that meant that he wanted to abolish women's roles. <laughs> like, this is not the case. Of a similar nature is the saying in Yalkut Lek Leka, sec 70, section 76, God said to Moses, is there respect of persons with me? Will, whether it be Israelite or Gentile, man or woman, slave or handmaid, Whoever does a good deed shall find the reward at his side. So what we should note is that the Jews who said these things and the culture who read it, they did not think this ruled out role differences or other distinctions related to gender or other factors. This is just bad Bible study. It, I'm taking this Galatians and I'm trying to build a bridge that doesn't exist. A, a bridge to stretch a, a sentence, no male and female. like that, those, those three words. To stretch it so far and wide as to abolish role distinctions and functions in the church related to those things. They would never have read it this way. They would never have, it would not have occurred to them. Now, many of you guys asked me to include more from Ben Witherington in my research. Um, in this particular issue, Witherington seems like he's gone through some changes over time. And I'll just mention this because you had asked me to cover this particular scholar. Um, in 1980, he published the, the, the work I was reading from just now, Right and Rights. And there he seems to be arguing that Galatians 3.28, throughout the whole thing, it's just about Galatians 3.28, that it has the same connotations I'm arguing for. He specifically says it does not rule out function differences. That's what he says, and he's an egalitarian scholar today. That's, but that's 1981, right? In 2009, he published the book, What's in the Word, which is uh, right over here. So when, when Witherington published What's in the Word in 2009, he reproduced his, his article on Galatians 3.28 with changes. Right there, he says, the ethnic, social, and sexual distinctions continue to exist in Christ, but they do not determine one's soteriological, spiritual, or social standing in the body of Christ, 
nor do they determine the ministerial roles one can play in Christ. So Ben Witherington of 1981 seems to disagree with the 2009 version, which is fine. Like we all change over time. Like if you looked at me 15 years ago, I would, there's going to be things I said then I would disagree with now. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. What I'm suggesting though is, and this is the important part, when I look through his chapter on this topic and I look through his original 81 work, the 81 work seemed like it was very much like evidence and reasoning just working through the arguments. But what's very notable is that he didn't make any argument in the newer work, 2009, that I can see for why he changed his view. It's just stated. It's a conclusion, but there's no bridge built. This is why I focused on Westfall, because she tries several different ways of building bridges so we could actually address those. The, um, the gap between belonging in Christ and ministerial roles one can perform, there's no attempt to build a bridge that I could see anywhere in Witherington's chapter on this topic. It's key to the egalitarian case to build a bridge there, but so often it's just stated that it exists, but with, with no evidence. So here's my thesis, my conclusion. Um, roles in marriage and ministry do not violate our status in Christ if they are different between men and women. The foundational idea of complementarian views does not make women less Christian or rob them of anything that Paul talks about in Galatians, their relationship with God or their future inheritance. It doesn't. And if you say it does, I think you're just wrong. Like this is where we disagree. This is why there's a philosophical thing that's, that's, that's causing us to disagree. Also, if you think that role differences do violate the status in Christ, then you have several hurdles because the Bible's not allowed to give role differences now. You have a philosophical commitment that's driving your Bible study. Please watch video number one in my series. I think the most important one. Sadly, it shouldn't be, right? but it paves the way so we can get into the verse-by-verse -verse stuff. Galatians 3.28 simply is not about what egalitarians make it about. It's not a silver bullet for them. And other New Testament teaching is being overlooked that is about those things, which I have talked about and will continue to talk about in this series. So here's conclusions from today, and I'll tell you what next, week's, next time is going to be about. I don't know if it'll be next Monday or two, maybe from now. Galatians 3.28 does mean this, right? Women have sonship status in Christ. They're as fully Christian as men. It also means they should never be treated as less Christians, less justified, not as close to God, or less than full heirs of the kingdom. Galatians 3.28 does not mean the following. It does not mean that all role differences are ruled out. As long as those differences don't impact their being in Christ, then they're not ruled out by Galatians 3.28. It doesn't mean that male and female is the same as slave and free or Jew and Gentile. The passage doesn't make these things all the same thing. It just says that they all have the same relationship to being in Christ, which is irrelevance. The third thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean anything about role distinctions in marriage or church leadership. It's just not about that. What I see here is the egalitarians using a verse that's not about the topic because the verses that are about the topic aren't helpful. That's what I think is happening here. Um, there are, however, ways where complementarians can get correction on this, on this verse. And that is in an attitude that I have seen sometimes that treats women as if they're a lower class of Christian. You're, you don't, you're not as, you know, you don't have as much understanding in Christ. You don't really, you know, you're just not as close to Christ as these guys. And I don't see this much. I think this is pretty rare, but it does happen, right? It also warns men, right? In fact, First Peter is great on this. Husbands, don't you dare mistake your leadership role in the marriage as your better standing before God. God will hold you to account. And if you mistreat your wife, your prayers are hindered. I think that's pretty heavy, man. Talk, this is the kind of like exaltation of the status of women we find in scripture, which is different than an egalitarian view, but it's very much a biblical exaltation of women. Finally, 
finally, final conclusion, we have to look outside Galatians. You have to, right? If you want to, if you want teaching on men's and women's roles in marriage or church leadership, you have to look at passages that surprise talk about men's and women's roles in marriage and leadership. Like that's what needs to happen. So the hermeneutic principle is right. The good one, right? Passages that clearly teach on an issue have to be prioritized in giving clarity over passages that are only secondarily being applied to an issue. And in this case, tertiary, tertiarily, quadrillarily, quintarily, <laughs> it seems pretty far reached. So next time, next week, or next time, two weeks, I don't know, whenever, next video on this series, we're going to deal with husband and wife roles and our husbands the head of their wives. This is a massive debate and it centers around this Greek word kephale and what does it really mean? And man, it's a huge debate, but the answers are there. And to the best of my ability, I'll bring you wonderful and good data next time around. Thank you guys for joining. And for those who are being part of this, I didn't realize before that um, my Women in Ministry series was coming right in the middle of a time when the topic of women in leadership is a huge issue of debate in the SBC. And it is, and it's vitriolic in some ways. It's not like everybody involved is vitriolic, but but there's that flavor that's there. Um, you know, you're violating the word of God. Well, you're you're uh, you're 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 oppressing people, and and it, this is, it's sad. Um, I hope that this is integrating into some of those people's lives. I'm not SBC, but um, but I'm a Christian like they are, and I care about the word of God, and I've never had so much clarity on the topic as I do now. So I'm hoping I can provide that for others. Thank you so much. Lord bless you.